rabbit holes are for closers. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world beat the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is July 7th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me from New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I am great. Uh, and from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Good. So late breaking news last night, Patrick Mahomes of the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs signed a 10-year extension that could be worth up to $500 million. And the Chiefs have their uh, their uh, MVP quarterback for like, you know, ever, ever in our in, I love in, this. in our terms. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, wouldn't you want, uh, if, if you're going to sign any quarterback to that long of a deal, wouldn't you want it to be Patrick Mahomes? He seems like as good of a, a of a um, bet to make the Hall of Fame at a, such a young age as like any QB I could remember. Yeah. Did he limit the amount of money he could make by signing this kind of extension? You could argue that he could have made even more money if he had signed a smaller deal and then re-upped at another point. But... Look, at a certain point, that's, a, that's plenty of money for Patrick Mahomes. I'm <laughs> sure he's fine. <laughs> More than $500 million. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm also sure that he is fine. Um, you guys, we need to talk about something that I think maybe has never happened in 538 history before. We talked about a guy, planned a story about that guy, and did not somehow jinx that guy. Never happened before. <laughs> Bryson DeChambeau won the <laughs> tournament this weekend, and we and we had a Jeff Foster byline on 538.com. I, so I everything was, came together. I, yeah, I was just fully, you know, when he got to that back nine, I was just full. I was just waiting for, I, you know, I was just waiting for the inevitable meltdown to blow up the story. Um, <laughs> no, every I, shot Matthew Wolf I, made, I was like, "Yep, there it is." And then no. started brainstorming Matthew Wolf takes. <laughs> you know, up and coming player would have been a second win. Would have been exciting. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it happened. Uh, let, let's not, you know, pat ourselves on the back too much. He was the favorite to win that tournament, which was a pretty easy tournament. It was not a pretty weak field. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. <laughs> pretty easy course for him. Um, and you know, well, you got it done. It's hard to, it's hard to close the deal in, in golf as we've discussed many a time. So did you congrats. make a bet on Bryson is the real? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Uh, yeah. Chalk. Well, he made, he, he made it even, he did make a bet because we had put all that work into that story and it would have that's blown true. up. So that's really the bet. I think that matters more than anything monetary. The thing I was most worried about was if he had blown it at a certain point, if he had blown it in the last few holes, it's like a different story. It's like, okay, wait a second. Maybe this guy's not the best player in golf. Maybe he's the biggest choker in golf because all we're seeing every week is top five and no victory. And now he's, you know, blown a clear shot at winning in, in, in the last few holes. So that that's what rabbit, I was most rabbit holes are for closers. <laughs> that's a really good point. Listeners, if you want to read the uh, a version of our last week's rabbit hole, it is up on 538.com right now. You've already listened to it. Now you may as well read, read it. it. Now yeah. live it. Now live it. <laughs> okay. On today's show, we'll talk about the Washington Redskins exploring a change to their team name and why it might really happen this time. We'll also talk about the 538 forecast for the rest of the NBA season. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. On Friday, Washington's NFL team announced that it is undergoing a thorough review of its team name. Its name is, of course, considered by many to be a racial slur against Native Americans. This is a reversal for majority owner Dan Snyder, who has always maintained that he wasn't going to allow the Redskins to change their name ever. The announcement of the name review came a day after FedEx, whose CEO is a minority owner of the team, publicly announced that it had requested the team change its name. Other sponsors, including Nike and PepsiCo, quickly followed suit. By Friday evening, the Cleveland Indians had also announced that they were going to explore renaming their team. We have seen many calls for Washington to change its team name in the past, but on ESPN's NFL Live, Jason Reed of The Undefeated broke down why, at least in the NFL, this time might be different. 
we're at a point where this decision has already been made. This decision to move forward and, and end this name was really part of a bigger overall thing that's happening in the league. I was texting with the league source just yesterday about the situation and some other things the league is trying to do for the upcoming season around this whole situation we have in the country, this reckoning on race that's occurring. And what my source told me was, hey, we want to be a leader in ending racism in this country. Now, let's put aside for a second whether you believe that, whether the NFL is just doing this because of the moment and because of what's occurring. The reality of it is that's the narrative that the NFL is putting out there. And this name undercuts that narrative. This name undercuts all the work that Commissioner Roger Goodell is telling his staff to do. It undercuts what the owners are telling Roger they need to do. And also remember this. Daniel Snyder has a fiduciary responsibility to his partners. That responsibility is to do everything in the best interest of the league to make money. Continuing with this name is an existential threat to the NFL. Not to the NFL's ability to make money at all, but to the NFL's ability to maximize its profits. This name is already gone. The only question is, what is the new name going to be? Is that right? Jeff, is the name change a foregone conclusion at this point? It certainly seems that way. It's funny because I think I feel like I've, I've even said it on this show. I've definitely mused it to myself. I, I remember even saying it out loud when I was sitting in that FedEx field, which, by the way, is the worst football stadium I've ever been in. <laughs> that the one thing that would move this team to change its name was a the corporate sponsorships, but specifically FedEx that they had the power to do it because because we've seen this over and over it, it will come down to money and if the team is 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 going to lose a significant amount of money you know whether you know from their uh stadium uh sponsor the stadium name sponsor or from you know we saw what happened with Nike pulling pulling Washington's gear from from their brand um and other uh, uh, other sponsors that are getting pressure, getting pressure on their side internally saying, you know, this is not a good look for us to support this franchise with that offensive name, then that was going to put the squeeze on Snyder, who who had seemed dug in for a while. It should be noted, though, about Dan Snyder. And, you know, my wife's from D.C., so I've, I've spent a lot of time around um, Washington fans, is that, first of all, Washington fans categorically do not like their owner. And that's an understatement to the point where I know people who have stopped rooting for, for that team altogether, just because of how he's run that team over the last few years. And if you want to know how he's run that team, it's poorly made a lot of bad decisions <laughs> left and right. And also, um, you know, put himself in the football decisions when, you know, an owner should and done taken some pages from the Jerry Jones playbook anyway, but the often one thing, and then th this is important that they do defend Snyder for is that the fact that he, he doesn't want to change the name, um, which is important to remember that there is a large chunk of their fan base who do really like that name. It is not just him. Um, and there are fans out there currently who don't want them to change it. You know, it's a sweeping generalization here. Obviously, there are also fans who probably likely detest the name like the rest of America does. <laughs> um, but it is interesting that, you know, uh, among their fan base, he he was seen as this protector of that name. But look, I, I think even even that that was at a different time. You know, I think things have changed now. I think we're seeing a lot of change left and right, not just in sports. And it, it, it feels inevitable. It feels like it's just way overdue. I mean, it, it, it's almost unbelievable that they've had that name for so long. Yeah. And to, to your point about money talking and also about, you know, Snyder not being popular, there are three minority owners uh, from, uh, you know, of the Redskins that own approximately 40 percent of the team itself. The rest of the other 60 percent is owned by Snyder and his family. And one of the big reasons why they're looking to sell their shares in the team is that they're reported to be not happy being a partner with Snyder. And some of it has to do with the team name being embarrassing. And I think also just from all the stories that we've heard, he's not, he's, he's a difficult person to do business with. And, uh, you know, this might be the tipping point, uh, you know, for that. And I, I think it's interesting that, you know, FedEx obviously could have pushed for this much earlier, Nike, Pepsi, you know, Bank of America. It's not like this is new. This controversy isn't new. But the pressure on brands now to not just 
say they believe in diversity, but to live that out is, is really, I think is forcing their hands. And so this is about money and things usually end up being about money, but it's also about the pressure put on all kinds of elements of society to actually change how they approach racial diversity and other issues of race. Um, so that the position of supporting this name became, I think, untenable for a lot of, for these sponsors. So, it, I mean, it's, it's connected to this, gra- these grassroots movements for this, which I think is something to, to keep in mind as people think about like what they, you know, the, the voice they can give to movements they believe in. That's all connected here. And it's not wanting to look like a hypocrite. I mean, that, uh, you know, the point that Jason Reed make, made was a great one that at this time when the NFL is trying to present this stance of, you know, solidarity with Black Lives Matter and trying to atone for some of its own mistakes in the past, that to, to have a team named a literal racial slur is not, you know, necessarily the look that you want to go for. And it kind of undermines the the image that the NFL is trying to present. And we can argue about how cynical that <laughs> that decision is to make, because I think it is actually very cynical. And I think it is, uh, you know, uh, I think it is about money, frankly, whether or not it's it, trying to appeal and make your brand look a certain way and trying to avoid the hypocrisy tied up in having other elements of people within your brand you know, working against that, that's still a monetary decision. You know, it's it's still trying to kind of clean up your your act and cover your tracks so that you can sort of more credibly sell your brand to people that want want to buy things from brands that they feel good about. The NFL owners, they, they share revenue and they're incentivized to for Washington to make as much money as possible. They are a profitable franchise, but they do need do need a new stadium. And there's talk of moving back to the old RFK site and that how the team name could get in the way of that. And they don't want a stubborn owner, you know, costing their bottom line. And, and frankly, I think there's a lot of owner for other NFL owners that would like to see new ownership in Washington altogether. Yeah. So Washington's team name has been sort of the most egregious example of a problematic team name in professional sports. But but many other professional teams also use Native American names and imagery. The Cleveland Indians, the Atlanta Braves, the Chicago Blackhawks, even the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. Neil, do you think this moment of reckoning that's happening will will include those teams as well? Well, it's already started to somewhat. I mean, the the Cleveland Indians uh, had, you know, a statement over the weekend talking about how they were sort of trying to figure out the best path forward with regard to the team name. And they've been sort of, I think, uh, you know, because Washington is so egregious that some of these other teams have been able to kind of hide in the shadow of that and not necessarily seen as much flack for it. Um, but you know, the the Indians have walked things back slowly over time, almost like hoping people would like not notice or that there was some kind of gradual thing that they could do because they stopped using the mascot Chief Wahoo, which I think was like as terrible as the the Redskins mascot and really it, it actually worse because it was kind of a caricature um, and and just really horrible. And they stopped using that. And, I, you know, I bet that they thought at the time, like, OK, we've gotten rid of that most problematic element of our brand. So we can probably just coast along, you know, <laughs> with that. And, and right. You know, Terry Francona, the manager of the Cleveland Indians, had some interesting comments on that where he basically said, you know, he didn't like the logo. And he supported when they changed the logo a few years ago and thought, you know, at the time that you know, since they weren't trying to be disrespectful, that that was, you know, good enough. But he said, you know, I don't think that that's a good enough answer anymore and that it's time to move forward. I think the Terry Francona's reaction is actually really like an instructive one for people because he he thought with the information he had a couple of years ago, he was okay with where they were and with more information and understanding people's points of views better. Now he understands he like needs to go a little further. And I think that's such a good like example for us as people. We want to dig in sometimes to our, to the beliefs we have at any one time, but with more information can come more learning and we can change our opinions. And I love that. I love that. He's willing to say that. 
yeah, that's a great point because, you know, Terry Francona is an old white guy, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. he's the type of, uh, of person that maybe, you know, demographically, at least you would expect to be resistant to this kind of change. Um, and so, you know, having him as an example of someone that can kind of, you know, model that, that, uh, evolution is an important one. But as we're seeing with some of these other teams, like the Braves and like the Chiefs, they're not really commenting on it. You know, the Braves put out a nebulous statement about how they honor and value the, the Native American community, but not really talking about a name change. And the uh, spokesman for the Kansas City Chiefs basically declined comment uh, when, when uh, they were asked by the Wall Street Journal about whether they were considering name change. And those two teams, along with Florida State, uh, which is its own, you know, problematic situation, uh, use the Tomahawk Chop, which is, you know, very kind of problematic in its own right. It's an interesting situation with the Tomahawk Chop and, and with Chief Wahoo, because so much of this is comes down to fan behavior. And and then all of a sudden, what are, what are we asking these teams to do? Are we asking them to ban the Tomahawk Chop to, to say it's not allowed in our stadium, which is a different sort of action than just changing a, a team name, which is, is obviously the to the sole discretion of, of the, the owners. I think, you know, it, even if you were to change, you know, the Indians name to the Spiders, which a lot of people really like, you're still going to see tons of Chief Wahoo gear in that stadium. The fans wear it constantly. Um, it, it's a popular logo, as offensive as it is. But the team chooses to encourage. Yeah. They can stop playing, obviously, the, the, the Braves can stop playing that song that goes with the, the Tomahawk Chop. Yeah, they're encouraging it, you know, and I don't know who started it. I don't know if it was like a a group of fans just banded together and decided like, hey, we're the, you know, we're the Braves. Let's start doing the Tomahawk Chop. I think but it I, actually I mean, it was seems like the implicitly... organist. That organist started it in 1991, yeah. And so they can stop doing that. Now, I don't know if that means that like if you wear chief wahoo gear to an indians game do you get banned from the ballpark you could see a situation in which that happens yeah. would it be popular no how do you enforce that yeah I, I don't even think that's necessary so much i mean i think i think it'll be individual behavior will take a while to change i mean the the tomahawk chop is a bigger issue because i think you're right i think some fans will just keep wanting to do it but the organist doesn't need to play the song you know but for in terms of like what that kind of apparel that like merchandise people will stop over time if it's there, they feel pressure not to, or they'll like do it to make a racist point, you know? Um, but, but it'll be, it'll be a smaller group of people if, you know, regular people see it as a bad thing. And also there'll be new merchandise to buy theoretically. And, you know, capitalism waits for no one. And, you know, so <laughs> that's one way teams can encourage, wearing different things by then selling new mascot stuff yeah dan, dan snyder should love this this is a chance yeah. to basically resell stream. a bunch of merch yeah to fan you know to existing fans that already have all the original merch and the florida state thing's interesting too because what florida state is always hid behind not hid behind but what they've always stood by is their relationship with the actual seminal tribe who has no issue with um Osceola and Renegade and, and the stuff they do before the game where the guy comes down and throws a spear and all that. They've always said, we, we endorse this. We're not this, but you know, there's other people have been like, they're not even getting it right. You know, he's, he's not even, I saw something that he's wearing the wrong headdress. Like it's not even accurate. Um, and there are people that are bothered by it, but I, I think they'll hide behind that the way, the same way Dan Snyder has hid behind the polls which say that Native Americans are not offended by the team name. And, you know, he, he stood by that for years. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's an interesting point, Jeff, because uh, that has been almost like the backbone of the argument to keep the Washington name the way it is, is that like, oh, you know, people who are actually Native American aren't offended by this. And it's just a bunch of white liberals kind of white knighting in here and, you know, uh, trying to to make trouble. But there's a lot of nuance in those polls that like the top line number doesn't necessarily capture. So, for instance, with that last poll, there was a great story by Teresa Vargas at The Washington Post that dug into more about 
you know, the the attitudes of the people that responded to the poll more than just do you approve or disapprove? Because that's such a black and white, yeah. you know, answer that obscures some of the true feelings um, uh, of Native Americans that when they look at it and they asked uh, basically what other adjectives would you use to uh, when you think about the team name beyond just are you offended by it or not? And interestingly, the word that was picked the most was proud, which does sort of fall in line with some of the polling in the past. But then after that were the words indifferent, annoyed, content, satisfied, and disappointed. And then some of the other words were appreciative, relaxed, nostalgic, angry, disturbed, embarrassed, hopeless, and exhausted. And so I think the fact that indifferent was right behind proud at number two really taps into this idea that I think drove some of the poll results was this idea that, you know, one guy was quoted as saying, we can't change it because we know we're not strong enough to change it. And that I think that this sort of resignation to never being able to kind of make a make a change on that and having to basically just why why get offended by something that, you know, you have no power to change really kind of paints us a, a much more nuanced and sad picture of of the response. Yeah. I think when we're talking, when, when you want to say, well, well, this name is, is we're, you know, preser- we're, we're honoring this, this culture that is not mine, but, but I'm honoring it with this name. I was come back, keep coming back to the, like that counter argument that like, well, what about the Celtics? What about the Vikings? Someone, I saw someone tweet the, over the weekend, like where, where will it all end? And it, like, it'll end where people feel not offended or not upset about the names that they that are chosen and i don't know exactly where that will be progress takes time and who knows but the difference for that for me is that like the vikings was chosen to uh as an as an homage to the scandinavian people in minnesota there are a lot of scandinavian people in minnesota and there were even more in you know 1960 when that name was chosen um, Celtics obviously are, is, you know, celebrating the Irish heritage of Boston. Now, not everybody in Boston is Irish, although it certainly seems like it, but like that isn't, that's celebrating the fans and the culture of a lot of fans trying to say that the, the native imagery is celebrating native people. That's not really the same thing. Um, and it's being used more like like a mascot that doesn't have anything to do with culture. Like, you know, the, the Detroit tigers are obviously not celebrating tigers, <laughs> the tigers of the Detroit area. Yeah. And there's, there's a long history of that trope of basically white people taking the appropriating the imagery and the culture of native Americans as sort of a mascot or, you know, something like that. Like, I mean, if you, if you go back to the Boston tea party in 1773, some of the colonists who threw the tea into the Harbor were dressed as Mohawks. Uh, and, and there was this, very interestingly, this period of time in the early 20th century in which a lot of these team names came into existence and not just, uh, you know, the Braves and the Indians and uh, the teams that we're thinking about now, but also, you know, a bunch of high schools and a bunch of, yeah. you know, uh, semi-pro teams and like all of this. Um you know, the Boston Braves adopted the team name in 1912. The Cleveland Indians took theirs in 1915. Uh, and then it's just sort of extended from there. So it's it's. Uh, it's a phenomenon that is rooted in a very specific time. And I think it's important to note that it was a time in which real Native Americans had been forced off of their land, forced into these reservations, forced to assimilate to white culture by the federal government and by these really draconian laws uh, that prohibited them from speaking their, their language with each other, from growing their hair out, like all of these things. If you lived in Cleveland, if you lived in Boston, uh, you know, in the early 1900s, 
you could probably tell yourself that there weren't any Native Americans anymore, that they had all been either killed, you know, in the in the battles in the Old West, uh, you know, in the 1800s or forced to assimilate to white culture. And so I think that that played into the attitude of, well, now uh, now that the white people have won, they can sort of do whatever they want with the imagery of the, the vanquished natives and convince themselves that it's a tribute or convince themselves that it's just almost a, a tribute to something that doesn't even exist anymore or an object of um, nostalgia instead of, you know, a real living, breathing group of people. And, and that was exactly when you saw this wave of mascots uh, emerge. Just to back up, Sarah, that argument is ludicrous that people say that about. I mean, we didn't have a genocide of Scandinavians <laughs> in this country. It, it, it's just a completely unfair comparison. Um, but it is interesting. I had a friend whose mother was... Native American. I actually talked to her about this uh, Washington football team once and and, uh, specifically about the poll. And what she said was, you know, it it sort of was in lines of indifference, meaning that the way Native Americans have been treated in this country and the way they're currently treated and what's going on with them currently and and not getting the same rights as other Americans, it it just wasn't the top of the list of things that offended them. There were so many other examples of change that could come and they didn't want that to be the one big uh, peace offering because it, it it wasn't substantial. And frankly, it, uh, at least judging by her and, and from what I've read, the thing that offends them way more if we're talking about symbols is Mount Rushmore, which is ironic considering where the president was last weekend, which was built on sacred, you know, in the Black Hills on Lakota land. And it, it was a bigger injustice. And, and that that is something that causes huge outrage, probably more so than than a, a football team name, which is ultimately silly. It is funny that we'll we as a society will tend to pick the easiest thing to fix. Um, I mean, I you know, right now there are black people in this country calling for, you know, systemic change to defunding the police. And instead we're getting things like old episodes of TV shows taken off Netflix. And it's like, no, no, see, we wanted this, this other thing, but, but of course it's much easier to take a TV show off of Netflix or whatever. Or, or to get rid of uncle Ben's and aunt Jemima. And- yeah. And like, those are, I, I think that like little things can add up and and can change how we view things, but we need to keep the big stuff in mind. Uh, you know, changing this team name has has been has seemed unattainable for a really long time, and now maybe it is something we can change, but it's not really the the real problem, right? <laughs> and so we have to keep that in mind too. I think we can end this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break. Even as NBA teams continue to deal with players testing positive for COVID-19 and subsequently needing to close down their practice facilities, Milwaukee, I'm looking at you, we are increasingly close to getting basketball back and people are gearing up for whatever this is going to be like. Giannis Antetokounmpo recently commented that this is going to be the toughest NBA championship to win. Jalen Rose pushed back slightly on that claim in a recent episode of ESPN's Jalen and Jacoby. I think uh, in various ways, you can say that it's the most unique championship of all time, playing in a bubble after doing 80% of the regular season, finding ways to play eight games for playing with the eighth spot and then engaging into playoffs. It will be the most unique journey. I can't mm-hmm. necessarily it will be the toughest journey But how about this? Of all the contending teams, I was just thinking about this. The Los Angeles Clippers are the only one that this is the best chance in the history of their franchise to win a championship. Here at 538, we've updated our NBA predictions powered by our Raptor player ratings for the league's restart. The Los Angeles Clippers actually have the best rating of any team in our projections. Neil, does this weird end-of-season Disney World bubble seem like a unique event the Clippers could capitalize on? Well, I mean, we have them as the second most likely team to win the championship behind their crosstown rival Lakers, and those two are, like, way out in front of everyone else combined. 
they they are more likely that one of the two LA teams wins the championship than all of the other teams put together. So, you know, I, I think that what's interesting to me is that the odds didn't change that much between uh, back when we put everything on pause in March and then when we reran the numbers. There were some changes, you know, some teams got healthier. The Bucks, you know, have a healthy Giannis. The Sixers have a healthy Ben Simmons. And uh, we can argue about how much that that matters or, you know, about uh, Ben Simmons impact because the Sixers were one of the teams that uh, this did seem to matter. They gained the most points of finals odds and and championship odds uh, of any team uh, over the layoff. But for the most part, I mean, it's still the same picture that we were looking at earlier, which maybe we shouldn't be that surprised by the 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 only other team that this changed things or two teams that it changed things significantly for uh are the pelicans and the grizzlies because they're the they were the two teams that were sort of in the um driver's seat for that eighth seed in the west now this is the battle to probably lose in the first round but still that that's one of the other notable changes yeah so leaving aside the conversation about how will this bubble actually work and how will this bubble actually work? Cause yeah, we just don't know yet exactly what, what that will look like when it's happening. Jeff, what are some of the big questions going into play? A lot of them seem to center around, you know, just what kind of shape these guys are going to be in. Um, you know, it's funny cause we talked about uh, last week and I guess the beginning of this week, uh, Bryson DeChambeau's physical transformation. We've seen plenty of physical transformations, um, in the NBA, and we're certainly speculating on others. You know, uh, Jokic for the Nuggets is probably the one that's gotten the most attention. At first, it came out on uh, these photos on Twitter on how skinny he was, <laughs> um, where he, he looked like Porzingis almost, like way skinnier, and how that would affect this game. Would it make him faster? Would it make him more agile on his feet as a defender? And, and he's already you know, a, a dominant player, does this make him more dominant or does losing that size affect? So all this speculation, and then it came out that he had coronavirus. So that adds a wrinkle to that. I think he was, you know, in the uh, Novak Djokovic um, super spreader camp or something like that. Um, <laughs> there were certainly photos of them openly embracing on the internet. Um, so it, it's an interesting wild card. I think, um, you know, on the flip side, we see that Zion who, you know, everyone will be paying attention to obviously looks like he's used this break to to get a lot more fit, which is who knows what kind of, I mean, we already don't even really know what to expect of Zion, but now, a, a, you know, a different Zion <laughs> is, is, hard to, uh, is hard to ponder. On the flip side, there was a lot going on about Luka Donich um, putting on a lot of weight. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see who emerges um, really in, in in game shape and, and who might need more time to get up to speed because because of the everything since such an accelerated schedule, there's not a lot of time to get into shape or to get in the right uh, physical condition to compete at this level. And obviously the NBA playoffs is, takes a bigger toll on the body, um, you know, than the regular season. And, and then also I think it's, it's interesting that what will the break itself do? Um, you know, you look at Houston um, with, two stars in Westbrook and Harden who have just logged huge minutes over the years. And, you know, certainly with the case of Harden, we've seen, you know, come playoff time, you know, this effect where he's, he seems kind of worn down and, and now he doesn't have that mileage. He's fresh. Yeah. So, this was the so ultimate if, load management, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and likewise with LeBron too, to a certain extent. So all that's interesting. I mean, there's other, you know, cases like Avery Bradley, on the Lakers who, who will not, whose um, son ha has a, a condition that he, he doesn't think it's worth the, the risk. Um, so he won't be going and how, how, you know, he, he's not a huge star, but he's an important player, especially on the defensive side for that team. They've, they've brought in J.R. Smith, which should be funny at, <laughs> at the very least. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know if he makes up for that. So, so that'll have an effect on LA. And, and then, you know, you have other teams, you know, we talked about a couple of weeks ago about the Sixers who, who have used, obviously had this time to get a little healthier, whether it's Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid, um, and, and maybe even, you know, figure some things out a team that wasn't playing up to its potential. 
yeah, there were already a lot of like interesting storylines going into the, you know, looking ahead to the playoffs back in March before any of this stuff happened, whether it be about the Sixers fit, the Rockets small ball lineups, the Bucks just in general, you know, the can they convert the great regular season that they had into, you know, the championship success that that uh, they've been looking for for a long time. So. I, uh, you add all of the other storylines coming out of it. This is one of the most storyline rich uh, playoffs in recent memory. And I don't know if that translates to being uncertain because again, you know, it's, it looks like kind of a normal NBA season, or at least, you know, when you add up the odds of the top teams, they still are like overwhelmingly likely to win. And, and it's, it's tough to find like dark horses, like, do the Raptors have anything? They're the defending champs. That's a fun storyline to to see what they can do. Well, they uh, they got without health, Kawhi. They got healthy, and yeah, like they had been doing so well all season without ever having you know their a reg their regular starting five on the court. They just they you know notoriously had to slot people in left and right. They are now all healthy. Will that help them? And we don't even know if, if a player does. Let's say um, test positive for the virus and come back like Jokic. Um, seems to be on track to come back. We don't even know, you know, what impact that will have on him. Yeah. Uh, you know, what you, we were talking before about the, um, you know, the, the bottom of the standings, which teams are going to, you know, make the playoffs, um, but then probably lose to one of the number one seeds. The Nets are an interesting case. No, I mean, no, obviously no Kyrie or KD. No DeAndre Jordan, no Wilson Chandler. Spencer Dinwiddie tested positive for COVID-19. Like, should they even be going to Orlando? Are there teams that clearly aren't going to get anything out of this and maybe shouldn't even be there? Well, somebody has to be the seven and eight seed in the East, right? <laughs> right? Well, actually, I mean, this might be the this might have been the one time that you don't even have to worry about conference designations. I know they had uh, a lot of deliberation over whether they would drop that. They ultimately decided not to because the schedule was imbalanced and it might have been unfair to certain teams. Um, but this would have been the greatest argument, you know, that the 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 reason why they've always said that they don't just seed teams according to record um, without respect to conference has always been, well, the travel would be ridiculous, you know, in terms of playoff series, trying to crisscross the country and everything. And, and that's just not a factor here. Everyone's in the bubble. Everyone's in uh, Walt Disney world. So this would have been the time to do that. And I think if you do look at that, uh, there are teams the problem is this is something that we talked about. I think we did a rabbit hole on it is that a larger share of all available wins in the whole league are accumulated by the best teams this year than in a typical season. So you could say, well, the, the nets, you know, have a sub 500 record. They have no business being there, but then you look at the potential eight seed candidates out in the West. And by the way, the nets would be the seven seed in the East and Orlando also obviously has a, um, a sub 500 record as the eight seed in the East right now, provisionally. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, the teams battling for the eight seed in the West also have sub 500 records. So it really is this like stratification in the league where if you're just going by only inviting teams that have, a better than 500 record, you'd have to leave off, you know, the bottom few teams from like both conferences almost. And I don't know how that would fly, uh, you know, uh, in terms of teams feeling like, well, we signed up for eight teams, a conference getting in a 16 team playoff. Yeah. Here's my radical proposal guys. This is what, this is what the NBA should have done. Leave the nets at home, bring in instead Golden State with a healthy Curry and Thompson and have them play in the in East. The East. <laughs> Make it why not? wild. Why Couple not? <laughs> move, them, move them back to Philadelphia, yeah. uh, the Philadelphia Warriors. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, let's just let's just do something crazy. I think they should just do a draft of, of all the, the players on the playoff teams. <laughs> Who wouldn't watch that? That would actually be really fun. Okay, well, so now that we have revised odds, um, probabilities, and title title chances for all these teams, does anyone want to change their title pick? You guys each had the Clippers and the Lakers. I don't remember which one of you had which, though. I'm pretty sure I had the Lakers because that's pretty chalky. And I thought we both had the that's Lakers. That's what I do. <laughs> Did you both have the Lakers? I think so. 
I remember being a little disgusted with myself <laughs> that I went uh, to Neil's world of chalk. <laughs> All right. Well, you lowered your... yourself to my level. <laughs> this is your chance. Change your pick. I'm not changing. No, my okay. Pick. <laughs> so you're not that disgusted with yourself. You took the bucks, took right, the bucks, Sarah? I'm, I'm assuming that you did. I did. And it's a very solid Sarah pick. That is a Sarah pick. I'm sick. I'm sticking with the bucks. Well, just to make it fun, we can't have two people with the same one. I'll take the Clippers because <laughs> I think that it, functionally the Clippers and Lakers are basically co-favorites. Um, you could kind of flip a coin between the two of them. So I'll, I'll roll with uh, Kawhi. Love it. Jeff, now do you want to change your pick? <laughs> I mean, I am in L.A. Well, I guess I could have really picked yeah. the Yeah. <laughs> Solve that problem. I am in LA, so I won't <laughs> pick the other LA team. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> we can leave this here. You could have picked the Rockets, Jeff. <laughs> no. no. I'm sort of interested in the Celtics. I was thinking about maybe doing an out-of-the-box pick on the Celtics and, and this sort of uh, Jason Tatum rise to stardom, which we saw a little bit of this year, but uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go that far. Okay. This is what I do. This is strategic. You say these things, you don't fully predict it. And then if it comes true, you can brag about it. Where later. eventually you have just said every name of every team. Yeah, in the eventually NBA. I've just been like, it's either the Bucks, Clippers, Lakers, Rockets, Celtics, Raptors, <laughs> or Nuggets. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Any of those teams. All right, let's leave this here for now. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 5.38, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Sure. So I was inspired by a tweet and then a subsequent story at MLB.com by Anthony Castro-Vince that wrote about batting stances. Specifically, MLB Vault tweeted, whose batting stance did you imitate the most growing up? And I wanted to track who the most popular results were for that. So I looked at the tweets that people replied to that tweet with uh, and added up the number of total likes for the various players that, that were responded on that chain. Uh, and so this was the ranking from the, the, the people, the fans, uh, in terms of their favorite batting stances. So at number one, by a pretty wide margin, surprisingly, if you add up all the likes to those tweets, was Gary Sheffield. And remember, this is imitating the batting stance. This is necessarily the best batting stance or the weirdest batting stance, but the one that you imitate. So Gary Sheffield, of course, had that, you know, sort of like wrist action where he sort of whipped the bat, bat uh, you know, back and forth. And he hit, the, he hit the ball hard. I think that that, you know, pre-swing routine that he did made it seem like he was hitting the ball even harder. I bet it added to his exit velocity. Number two on that was Ken Griffey Jr., uh, which, of course, I think probably the best swing in baseball history, most most aesthetically pleasing swing in baseball history. And you had people saying like, you know, who didn't imitate his swing? I was a righty and I imitated his his swing even. Then after that, uh, you have Julio Franco, who had a very interesting swing in which he sort of contorted himself, turned his back almost to the to the pitcher and held the bat really high. Not quite Craig Council level, who's also on this ranking a little lower, but it's also should be noted Julio Franco is I think still playing professional baseball somewhere, or at least he's, he's coaching it, but not far removed from actually playing. So you could have seen this, this stance in action relatively recently. Uh, you had Jeff Bagwell, whose thing was getting super low to the ground, like just very wide stance, very low to the ground. Tony Batista of the Toronto Blue Jays. In fact, one of the most popular uh, like individual tweets. So if it, it doesn't add up for all the Batista responses to beat Sheffield, who had a bunch of different people say Sheffield is the pick. But the Toronto Blue Jays themselves responded to MLB Vault's tweet with a picture of <laughs> Tony Batista. And of course, Tony Batista, right-handed batter, he almost took the opposite approach of somebody like Franco who like turned away from the pitcher. And, and instead he was the ultimate open swing. He would stand basically facing the pitcher with his bat just sort of held up in front of him, almost like a katana or something like that. And then when the pitch came through, he would close it up a little bit and swing at it. So definitely one that was easy to mimic. If you're a kid, Kevin Euclid next on the list, uh, he had this very, 
bizarre sort of like shimmy that he did. And he held the bat very lightly and almost like he, he would do this thing where he would swing the bat more with his top hand than his bottom hand. He'd follow through with the with the top hand and take the bottom hand off. Not from the Charlie Lau school of hitting, for sure. Uh, Ichiro Suzuki in there, he would lift the bat and kind of point it at the pitcher before uh, settling into his stance. Craig Council, as I mentioned earlier, very strange stance, holding the bat completely above his head and sort of like twisting himself like a pretzel. <laughs> so those were the fan picks for uh, the 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 most imitable batting stances ever. But um, the the MLB.com story broke it down by position, and there were some crossover here. So Euclid was the first baseman on the all batting stance team. Council was the second baseman. Julio Franco, the shortstop, because that's what he played early in his career uh, in, in year, you know, the, the first decade of his three-decade MLB career. Batista at third, Sheffield and right. But there were some other ones that snuck in there, like Mickey Tettleton, speaking of the Tigers, at catcher. Uh, and he had an interesting swing where he was kind of closed up, but then sort of just held the bat horizontally behind him. Most players kind of bring it up to shoulder level, but he he sort of set himself by holding it off the side. A little Rod Carew in that stance too. And Rod Carew was also one of the runners up on the list. Phil Plantier, not popular among the fans. I don't think a lot of people remember Phil Plantier, <laughs> but uh, he was there. Don't he was their take pick. Hot shots at Phil. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got more he got more likes on his tweets than the other two, which were Coco Crisp uh, at center field and Oscar Gamble. Oscar Gamble, much more remembered for his hair, kind of classic fro uh, uh, on, on many a baseball card in the 70s, but also memorable batting stance. Uh, and then, of course, Coco Crisp sort of had this weird like Joe Morgan type elbow action, but, you know, a little bit different too. Joe Morgan didn't get enough love on this, in my opinion. He He's had one of the most imitable batting stances, but that that was your, your all batting stance team official, according to MLB.com. But I wanted to ask you guys, what are your favorite batting stances? Sarah, I know you took a batting stance quiz that was sort of related to this um, that had some of these names on it. No, it's funny how um, the fact that I didn't play baseball or softball like I played two seasons of softball when I was like nine and ten so I didn't play long enough like I I couldn't hit the ball at all much less do it while imitating someone else's stance like I was just flailing for my life up there um so I didn't I didn't I really don't like the obvious stances the really weird ones I know but I don't pay a lot I realize that I don't pay a ton of attention to that which I find really interesting like why that doesn't resonate with me. Jeff, what about you? Did you have a certain stance when you played when you were a kid? Well, not when I played. I certainly did a lot of like imitating, you know, just, you know, on my own time, not in an organized sport. <laughs> in your bedroom? Uh, uh, I was, you know, trying, mainly when I was playing, I was just trying to focus on not striking out. Um, I didn't have time for the theatrics with the stance. Uh, I always was very intrigued by Bagwell. I'm glad he made the list. Um, it, it His was always just... It, the weird thing about him was that he didn't seem to step into the ball. He almost seemed to step away from the ball, which just the physics on it just it made no sense. The one I used to love, um, which I, I don't believe has been mentioned, um, is Jay Buhner. Because Jay Buhner, he had this weird stance where he just kind of stood there like he was like online for the bathroom. <laughs> He's kind of like upright, just stood there holding the bat here. And then he would just explode into this very powerful swing. But it was it was the laziest of stance. <laughs> if I had to say who I imitated, I, I often looked at Carter as a Met fan as a kid. Gary Carter, I looked at a lot, had a very kind of weird stance where his elbows were out that I, I probably imitated quite a bit. Did, was the batting the official batting stance guy involved in any of this? Because if he wasn't, he's furious. They name dropped. So, yes, Gare Rhinus, the batting stance guy who uh, uh, this uh, this is really his uh, subject matter expertise. Um, so they they mentioned him uh, in the story, but I don't know if he was uh, if he gave input into the rankings. But I have to say my the, the stance that most appealed to me and that I grew up imitating will come as a big surprise to those who know my stance on my stance, no pun intended, <laughs> on the New York Yankees. Uh, and in particular on 
one of their greatest ever players, but I was always a huge fan of Derek Jeter's batting stance and swing and always modeled my own swing and stance on Derek Jeter, which is very strange given the fact that I'm not the biggest uh, Jeter or Yankee fan. Jeter, uh, first of all, the batting stance guy's Jeter is uncanny. (laughs) Um, Watch it and it'll bring back so many memories, good or bad. But he's definitely got down the whole routine. And he also did a great uh, David Ortiz in terms of the routine. But the way Jeter was hitting on the hands, (laughs) the clapping. And it's interesting when what he's picked on is once you start paying attention, how these guys are so quirky and these little like ticks and habits they have prior to even really stepping into the batter's box. Nomar Garciaparra adjusting his gloves like 25 oh, times yeah. before getting in. That's what I, that's, that's the stance I would imitate just to keep adjusting my gloves and not actually have to swing the bat, which I was always terrified of. So <laughs> just gloves over and over. Sarah, the human rain delays. Yeah, exactly. Sarah walking back to the dugout Ziegler, which is actually true. <laughs> I I can't let this Jeter thing stand. You should only imitate players from your the team you're a fan of. I I believe it. I think that's true. Because wow. you can't get into this thing where you're imitating a player you hate. That's terrible. I don't care if it helps your swing. <laughs> what if you were mocking? What? What if you're doing it uh you know to make fun of them? What were you Neil? No. No, I mean it just felt natural. Look, it, uh, batting stance is all about what feels natural. And I think that these examples, both from the fans and from the MLB official all batting stance team, show you that it, it's not about, you know, whether or not uh, you think that it's like textbook or, you know, you've read the science of hitting and you want to uh, uh, do everything by the book. It's about what feels right when you're a child especially, and and something just appeals to you inside and it feels comfortable to potentially swing like Derek Cheater, mm-hmm. hypothetically. Maybe this is, maybe I am I can take this stance because I didn't really take a batting stance. <laughs> a stance. <laughs> I, I want to do uh, pitching motions. Are we going to do this for pitching motions? Oh, we should. I mean, we should because uh, Hideo Nomo, yeah. always a classic. His was insane. Yeah. I liked um well so what I like it is when major leaguers have the same style as like a taken a batting stance or a pitching motion that a previous player had taken. I I love that. Like um uh the pitcher Charlie Morton, he threw like uh Roy Halladay. And I I always really loved Roy Halladay, yeah. Yes. I thought that was really fun. I don't think he does that anymore, but um but I really liked it when he did it. I like that kind of that homage to previous previous players even if it would have been Derek Jeter that would have been fine it's fun when it's fun then when the real players do it all right I think we can leave that there that will do it for this week's show we will be back in your feed next Tuesday if you like what you heard please subscribe and if you are subscribed please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice it helps new people discover the show you can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.